Hello, and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I am your guest, Joe Grand, a.k.a. Kingpin. And we're your hosts, Parker Doman and Stephen Craig. And this, this is, is episode number 73. 73. Oh, you guys are so great in tandem. <laughs> we've, we've, you that can tell we've luck. got this down. We've only done it 73 <laughs> times. No, that was, no, that was by sheer luck, because I can't really hear him with the headset on. Oh. And are you guys sitting next <laughs> to each other? Yeah. yeah, 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 and and almost and almost facing each other too. So that that was nice. perfect. Way to go! All right, listeners, if you enjoy the Macrofab Engineering podcast, please let others know about us. Tell your coworkers, your friends, your family, your loved ones, and share it on social media at Macrofab or follow us on Facebook. We also have an Instagram at Macrofab Inc. At some point during the show, we're going to announce a secret code word. If you email us the code word and your address, we'll send you some cool Macrofab swag. The email address is podcast at macrofab.com. So our guest this week is Joe Grand, also known as Kingpin. He is a computer engineer, a hardware hacker, product designer, teacher, advisor, runner, daddy, honorary doctor, TV host, member of legendary hacker group Loft Heavy Industries, proprietor of Grand Idea Studio, and our first guest to actually have a Wikipedia page. Woohoo! He's been creating, exploring, and manipulating electronic systems since the 1980s, which I bet you a good portion of our listener group wasn't even born in the 1980s. <laughs> I, was I was barely born in the 1980s, but yeah, thanks for making me feel old. I've also never had somebody read that bio. It's cool to have somebody say daddy. Other than yeah. three, three people I normally do. Right, and what, what I like about it is how daddy is somewhere buried in the middle of all of that. That's right. It's, it's yeah. perfect. It's an accomplishment, was, but there's other ones also, so I don't know how I'll, to order them. I'll, I was really hoping you'd go Wikipedia page and then emoji smiley face. Yeah, like right, yeah, there is a, right, that was part of it. I totally <laughs> skipped over that, sorry. <laughs> so, Parker, you, you and Joe actually know each other. Yeah, we went to a, um, like, parallax propeller meetup kind of thing over in was it san uh that, that was in outside of sacramento it was in rockland sacramento um, yeah and this was like uh i guess a few years ago for a few years parallax who you know specializes a lot in, in hobbyist electronics and robotics um and they make a bunch of hobbyist modules of course the the uh propeller processor and the basic stamp and all these things and they had been holding originally they started as what was called the unofficial unofficial propeller expo and then it just turned into sort of these annual kind of meetups. And yeah, it was like somehow like, showed up for one. <laughs> well, I was at the uh, Maker Fair that year. Oh, so you and drove it was, out? Yeah, I drove out and uh, met up with all the guys from uh, the Toy Makers and and well, I think it was called Parallax Con or something like that. Yeah, they changed the name because it was sort of not you know there was no real agenda. It was just everybody hanging out and oh yeah, that's right because it was the the Ma Bay Area Maker Fair. And you were there, yeah, Toy Makers, which a bunch of us hang out on the on the Toy Makers IRC channel, pound T Y M K R S. And uh on Afternet. You were already there, right? And then you were already on the channel, so it was just like meeting another new face. And it was uh yep. yeah, surprising that you came all the way from Houston. Well, I always made the uh, San Mateo Maker Fair and it was just when those uh the Toy Makers invited me out, I'm like, sure, I'll just go ahead and just drive on over there. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, that was I was that was actually right when we were starting Macrofab as well, and like I really wanted to look at Parallax's assembly line and see like how we how you actually build electronics because at the time we were just still trying to figure that out. 
Yeah, and that's actually... It was like four years ago. <laughs> well, you guys sort of figured it out, it looks like. But, you know, it's like Parallax is a great example of that because they're a you know, small kind of family-run, very dedicated group of people working there, and they believe in what they're doing. They're not this faceless, you know, normal type of assembly facility or contract manufacturer where you might have, you know, some project manager dealing with your stuff who might have to communicate with other people. Like, it's a small thing, so you get to see their real process. And I, I, I think you were there when we saw the um, selective soldering station, right? I think they had just set it up. So it was like yeah. a big blob of solder that they that could move around and, and solder through whole parts. And like that was just so, so cool looking. Yeah, they had a uh, KISS model of that. And basically, I put that on our list of what we had to have at Macrofab. So we have a Rhythm RPS, which is basically the same thing as that machine. Nice, yeah. And uh, and there was the uh, something about the quadcopter too, right? Like Ken, I don't remember if Ken Gracie from Parallax had just finished building. It was like their new quadcopter kit or something like that. Yeah, it was. What, it was what's it called? Off? It's like a PX8 Octo um, quadcopter. It was some massive thing that was a kit, and you could yeah. build it or something. And yeah, I, the I thing like is, the, yeah, the thing is like four feet in diameter. Wow, that's huge. Yeah. <laughs> So the best thing is, is like Ken just finished building this thing and hasn't even flown it yet and takes it outside. And we're all like flying all these little tiny ones around. <laughs> and then Ken hands Joe the controller for the big quadcopter and says, it's easy. Go for it. <laughs> you can't crash it. I don't know why he gave that to me. I told him that I'd never flown one before, but I've been curious about it. And especially since they had a kit, I was like, well, we can build the kit. And it would be fun to fly. And, like, you know, so many people fly quadcopters now. And, and to me, it looks so easy. But then when you put a controller in my hand, like, I basically have a whole bunch of thumbs. And, <laughs> like, you know, I grew up using computers. I don't, I'm not that coordinated. Um, and he was like, it's easy. Just keep the red lights in the back and the green lights in the front or something like that. And it basically, like, I think it went up, like, really high up. And then it went really fast down. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I was a little bit embarrassed, but, you know, he gave me the chance. What can I say? Yeah, it was it was the highlight of that trip. <laughs> yeah, then Ken, Ken probably spent the rest of the trip fixing it. <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> 3D printing new parts and stuff. That's right. Yeah. So in your description, also known as Kingpin, what's that from? <clears throat> yeah, okay, so... I guess I should give a, a little bit of background on my history. I do want to state, by the way, I, I have the awesome Macrofab Engineering featured guest t-shirt, and I have my, <laughs> my peach blossom kombucha in the Macrofab koozie, so I'm like totally ready for this, for this podcast. Uh, if, you, if, yes, you, I, if you can give us a selfie for the podcast will, notes, that'd be awesome. I'll take one when I'm done. So yeah, and I did say kombucha. <laughs> I, I live in Portland, Oregon, um, possibly home of kombucha. And uh, I don't drink beer, but this is, like, the best thing to have. And it has a little bit of caffeine, and I'm super sensitive to it. So by the end of this podcast, I'll probably be running around in circles in my office. So luckily, no one's going to see that. Um, okay, so Kingpin. So I grew up, um, started using computers in 1982, uh, and I had an Atari 400. And my, my brother is six years older than me, and he was involved wait, 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 in computers. Wait, Joe, when were you born? So I was born in 75. So I was seven, seven okay, years old. Seven years old. Okay. Yeah. Um, when I started, and I, I mean that was just dumb luck. Like my brother had a computer. I don't. I don't know why he was, why he was interested in it. I know he was interested in electronics as well. 
Um, so we would kind of tinker around on the computer on weekends and stuff, and we would type programs out of magazines. And then he decided, I think he was like in maybe eighth or ninth grade, that he wanted to become a musician and sort of just stopped using the computer. So I just basically inherited the computer room with all these disks. And, and by that point, we had been calling bulletin board systems to connect to other computers. Some of them, uh, you know, intentional setup bulletin board systems where people can communicate with each other. And then other things were just random, weird systems that you could connect to with a computer. Um, and at the time, the, the hacker community, I didn't know the word hacker, but really, you know, the people that were involved in computers a lot of them were what I would call hackers. So people curious about technology and wanting to learn something new. And you know, computers at the time were really, if you had one, you were lucky, but it was really a hobby and it was a passion for people. It wasn't like today where it was a mainstream tool that everybody has. So there were a lot of, a, a lot of things that, that I started to do. Um, I sort of discovered the hacker world at the time, which was, which actually, you know, you hear about like hackers being nerds in their parents' basement or whatever. Um, at that time, like it really was nerds in their parents' basement, or in my case, like up in my parents, you know, third floor, little tiny room. Um, but it was just a different. Oh, so you world. were the nerd in the attic then? I was a nerd <laughs> in the attic. <laughs> yeah, and I finally came out of the attic um, a little bit later on. But it was like having you, you, people didn't use their names; they didn't use their real names. So it was sort of like creating pseudonyms. And Kingpin was not the first. That just happened to be the one, by the time I was 16, uh, is the one that stuck. So my actual first hacker name was Black Ninja, because as a seven-year-old, like, okay, I'll wait for you That's laugh. awesome. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. That's right. No, no, that's perfect, so, man. And not even Black Ninja with numbers behind it. You were, like, the Black Ninja. The, real, it was just oh, the OG. There was no other, yeah, it was just yeah. Black Ninja. There can and, be um, no other. <laughs> which is hilarious because, you know, like, if you talk to any seven-year-old, ninjas are amazing, right? Like, kids love ninjas, and especially black ninjas, like, if they're, you know, dressed in black. So, to me, it seemed like a natural <laughs> handle, except now <laughs> I have kids, and when my, when my son, he's eight, I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, when my eight-year-old was, uh, I think he was, like, six years old, he had to choose a name for something in his school, and he chose Black Ninja, completely separate, never knowing about my history. <laughs> Dude, that, so usernames are genetic. Yeah, there we go. It's like, you should be, you know, Black Ninja Jr. Um, so. <laughs> you, so it's like, you know how, like, usernames, like, now you have to have a username, and then you have to have, like, numbers and stuff afterwards? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So when you, so when you die, you also pass on your usernames now. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. So, that, like, a username that, that doesn't have. <laughs> that is weird. No, no, but like, a really username weird. that doesn't have numbers at, at the end would be, are, are going to be, like, scarcity. Like, if you have one of those, you're, like, one of the original internet yeah. user families. Oh, yeah. No, I, I remember once I played a StarCraft game on Battle.net with a guy whose username was Viper. And I thought it was so cool because it was, like, this guy was, like, an original so OG, OG StarCraft right yeah. here. Yeah. Well, it's like having a short, you know, like a three-letter domain name or something, which we used to have so many of back in the day and just got rid of them all. But that's the thing. Right. You know, if you had, you had, you know, we had LHI.com, which was one of our, part of our hacker group. Um, and I think we ended up selling it, but we should have held on to it and sold it for, you know, something more. But yeah, so, you know, people just had fake names back in the day. And it was mostly a novelty at the beginning. Um, so, you know, I would use Black Ninja. I had a whole bunch of other ones in between. Um, as I started to turn into a teenager, um, I think, let's see if I can think of some of them. I had, uh, 
FBI agent, another original one. Uh, <laughs> uh, Astro Zombie was another. I was a huge Misfits fan at the time in, in about eighth grade. So Astro Zombie, um, Otto Vaughn was one, which was like a secret uh, government telephone network. <laughs> and I can't remember what the other ones. Uh, I had the youth for a while because I was always like the youngest of everybody in every group I was involved in. And then Kingpin came around because I thought all those other names were lame and I wanted to, to find something, which looking back, it's sort of like, that's sort of, a, I think Kingpin is sort of a lame name also, but I was still a teenager and it sort of stuck. Like I would have liked it if somebody else gave me a nickname because it would have been more funny. Um, but this one was, I was uh, uh, heavy in, into skateboarding. So Kingpin was like, you know, a part of the skateboard truck. Um, there was a band in Boston where I'm from called Kingpin at the time that I was really into, sort of from the punk hardcore scene. And uh, then I'm not into Spider-Man, but that guy in Spider-Man, like the king, the guy named Kingpin, who's like that big fat dude with the with the diamond and like you know he was like this this badass gangster, which yeah, I totally yeah, yeah, yeah. was not. I just liked his persona, and I don't like bowling either, by the way. But I just liked that sort of cartoon <laughs> aesthetic. So I don't know, and it just stuck, and it was like it's not really. I, it's sort of like, uh, I'm stuck with it. What can I do? Um, and I deal with it. And people still call me Kingpin or KP. What's funny is like sometimes when we were at the loft, which was our hacker group, and you needed to, you need to sign up for some, you know, magazine or something that required a first name and a last name. Kingpin obviously didn't work, and it was obviously a fake name. So I would, I would do Kin as the first name, G as the middle initial, and Pin. And then it was like, you know, I'm Kin G Pin. <laughs> and nobody knew anything else. You know, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog, so. <laughs> so it worked. But yeah, so, you know, that's sort of the history. As the, as the Loft progressed, which was a hacker group I was involved in um, in the early 90s, we were one of the first publicly facing hacker groups to really challenge companies to fix security vulnerabilities and um, spread the message, the good message of the good side of hacking as far as discovering problems and helping people to fix them and not relying on the corporations to fix the problems because if you trust corporations and you wait for them to do stuff like you're going to be shit out of luck really fast right because mm. they're they're concerned about money not security and that's the same thing today so we were doing very controversial things like we would find uh problems in windows and i, w I was mostly a hardware guy so i would tinker around mostly with like i was playing around with mobile data terminals and decoding poxag pager transmissions and messing with radio systems um but i, I so i would do mostly hardware but as a group we were you know T taking a lot of pokes at Microsoft was the biggest and we'd find vulnerabilities in their products and they'd say, oh, no one's ever, and we'd confront them and they'd be like, no one's ever gonna do that. And we're like, well, if yeah, we no one's gonna find, find that. Yeah, and like yeah. if we can find it as a group of seven people doing this and we're the good guys that are just curious, there's probably somewhere, somebody else doing it that's gonna exploit it in some malicious way. So we're doing this as a service to give you. And eventually they're like, you know, we had to write some exploit code to show this stuff. And eventually they got it. And that sort of kicked off what I would say of like the, dis the sort of responsible disclosure era of security. But we were pissing off a lot of people. Um, you know, there's seven guys with fake names uh, that have basically forced their way into the, the InfoSec community, which at the time was like a very square, mostly academic like you had a lot of practical on the network side but not a lot on the security side and we were just coming in like you know like the kool-aid man he like busts through the wall he's like kool-aid and <laughs> we're like that except no but you you'd you'd bust in me like hacking man Hackers. <laughs> yeah. you know and it's like we're seven guys and uh like literally seven dudes that work at, at you know we, we go to this clubhouse at night and like we're we're not 
these you know we we're just normal people so we're like hackers and um <laughs> but it finally you know <laughs> got the message through but we we had a we had i know the image is is hilarious um we had we had a lot of people that were angry at us and they would send us messages and say you you should use your real name if you're so brave about releasing security vulnerabilities and all this stuff and we're like well the reason we're not is because people like you are going to harass us so that was really how kingpin stuck because that was the name i used through the loft through our senate testimony when we testified to congress about the state of security in in the government um, I'd, I'd had papers published with the name Kingpin, and there was all this other stuff. So eventually, when I started using my real name, I associated it with Kingpin so everybody knew. And at this point, it's like, I don't care if my name is out there. What I did in the past, I'm proud of. The statute of limitations is probably, ex, you know, ex, expired for, probably. for any of the stuff I did. So, you know, it's like, it's a cool piece of history where it was like, nowadays people choose a name because they, they can. Everybody has a pseudonym or a handle or whatever they call it, you know. Um, online, but this was like a, a, a necessity, a requirement, so we wouldn't get harassed all the time. That's the short version of it. <laughs> the short version. Of the uh, the best thing about that is the uh, the probability of statute of limitations is you know it's probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> something can always something can always come back and get you right. So I don't really know, but we were generally on the good side, doing good things, spreading the good message. As a kid, though, I will say, so that was at the loft. When I was growing up, as a teenager, there were a lot of things. I don't know the statute of limitations on some of this stuff, but I do know that for some of the computer exploration that I was doing as a teenager, if, if, if I got caught doing that now, I would probably be in jail for the rest of my life and be labeled a, a terrorist and a identity theft cyber warrior, whatever. You know, it's like the laws have changed so much where there really was no structure around what we were doing. And as a kid, I sort of liken what I was doing a lot as a kid as like digital mischief of I was exploring and I wanted to learn and I would read Electronics Now magazine and popular electronics and radio electronics and I would build all these projects. And then on the computer side, I would want to explore. And I it's, you know, originally started as a kid trading games with people. That's what I was using the bulletin board systems for. But then you discover all these other systems. So it wasn't even this thought process of like, am I connecting to something I shouldn't be connecting to? No, it was just like I dialed with my, you know, rotary phone and plugged the phone into the acoustic coupler modem. And like now I've connected to a system. I didn't have to log in. I didn't have to guess a password. Usually if I did a lot of times those systems, we would just go through the trash, the physical trash and like pull out passwords. Um, But it was just like a totally different time. And that sort of shaped my mindset of moving forward into my, I guess, my career and my life and everything about sort of questioning things and exploring and doing what I want to do to kind of learn. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It was, a, it was a fun time. You never had those uh, messages pop up that says the uh, the system admin has been reported and your IP has been logged. No, this was before <laughs> IP. No, this was like... The Secret Service calls your house and your parents answer the phone. (laughs) (laughs) We would get a lot of phone calls from telephone operators because a lot like back in the day I was before the loft, I was part of a hacker group called Renegade Legion. And there's not a lot of information about us online. But if you do go to textfiles.com, which is sort of an archival of old text files put together by um, an old friend of mine, Jason Scott, who is a bulletin board system operator of uh, a BBS called The Works and is now working at the Internet Archive, basically archiving all digital history. There are some files that we released back then. And, you know, you read the titles and it's like, 
well, you can read them for yourself. Um, and you can sort of get a feel for like what the, what the early 90s kind of hacker community was. Um, but we would set up alliance tele, teleconferences. So basically set, you know, set up a, a telephone conference where you could have 50 people dial in um, and you'd have these massive phone conferences where people would just talk. It's sort of like, I don't know what the equivalent would be online now, like IRC or, or Slack or whatever, but it's like everybody's on the phone trading information, heckling, you know, calling the bully at school and screwing with his parents or whatever it was. And those were not set up in a legal manner. So the phone company would call the numbers that were on the conference call and try to get information about like, do you know, do you know who was on this call from this phone number? And I'd be like, uh, no, sir, there is nobody here that would do that. <laughs> and you're like 13. Yeah, trying to 13. make your voice lower. <laughs> and at that age, and at that age, you know, people called me Mickey Mouse because my voice was so high. So it was, yeah, it was a hilarious time. I have actually I have phone recordings of trying to get out of some of those phone calls as well. I had one guy call me because I was abusing a, um, uh, a a telephone service to get free phone calls. Also, again, as a teenager, way before I was eighteen, and um, he ended up calling me and saying, "I know somebody was calling." numbers from this phone number and blah 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 and i'm like i'm sorry sir i don't know what you're talking about and just hung up but it was like <laughs> i was so scared so <laughs> yeah and actually so that actually brings me to an interesting first project of mine an electronics project was something called a ring busy device and it was a device that it was a i don't remember the exact resistor value but it was a single resistor half watt resistor that would go in line with the ring and the tip of the RJ11, you know, standard telephone lines for mm-hmm. those who remember those. And mm-hmm. what would happen is you could still use the phone from like the house. So my parents could use the phone. My, my sister and brother could use the phone. But if somebody tried to call our house, it would give a busy signal. So it was perfect for like for fear of people calling the house. And it helped mm. a lot. So I would just flip it on. So I built a little circuit board, etched the circuit board with ferric chloride and stuff because, you know, Radio Shack sold the kits to make your boards. And, um, uh, yeah, with a Sharpie it, in it. With a Sharpie in it and the rub-off letters you could get. So I made a whole bunch of those as kid, as a kid, like different projects. But that Ring Busy device was the first one. And I had a little switch so I could turn it on before dinner and turn it off, you know, when I was going to have my friends call me later at night or whatever. But that was like a godsend, man. I mean, to, to, have, the, to have the confidence to know that nobody's going to call my parents while they're home was like, whew. <laughs> <laughs> Did your parents ever get suspicious of the fact that no one could call them? Um, no, but a few times I think they had like waited for a phone call and didn't get it. So they called their friend and their friend's like, oh, the phone was busy. And they're like, I don't know. They, you know, they didn't know. <laughs> Which is actually, I, I feel bad telling that story because they're actually right outside my office right now visiting me from Boston. And I don't know if they ever know that story. <laughs> I'll have them listen to the podcast. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. So speaking of first, you did the last time we had a guest, we had and XOR on. and not XOR yeah, and not sure, XOR, yeah. and they do DEFCON badges. Yes. And when that episode came out, you pinged me on IRC and you're like, I have history with this. <laughs> um, and like all caps. So, yeah. What, what, so what's your background on De- the DEFCON badges? Sure. OK, so I have to say, let's start with the current state of things. The and not XOR badges and the group that are working on that stuff is epically amazing and the the art and sort of the design and the number of people creating electronic badges these days is is crazy right and it's just so cool to see like every conference you go to every party you go to every sub conference within a conference has a thing every 
group has a badge. Um, so it's really kind of great to see because that just means that electronics and the hardware side of things is spreading to the masses. Um, the reason I pinged you is I know there's, you, you guys asked him a question about what is the history of the DEF CON badges, and it turns out he wasn't actually sure. And electronic badges, the history doesn't go back that far, but I was like, wait, maybe nobody really knows the history. So the, as far as I know, and it would be great if any listeners have examples of earlier of this, but as far as we know, the DEF CON 14 badge, which was the first electronic badge that I designed, was the first electronic badge used as like a conference um, thing. So it was basically, you know, some electronic product that was used as some artistic conference, uh, public conference badge. <clears throat> and I don't know if that's true. So, you know, I'm wondering if there's, you know, some uh, homebrew computer club from the 70s or something that somebody made a badge and used that as the the actual official conference badge. But the, the history was... Um, I can just imagine point, someone wearing a ginormous motherboard with a 68K on well, it yeah. now. <laughs> but yeah, but that would, that's the thing. It's like, that would be so cool. Um, it's like, it'd be like the flavor Flav of classic computers. That's right. Well, there was sort of a time, and actually I'll explain that with DEF CON, like the badges sort of increased in size to the point of people were actually wearing a flavor Flav sized <laughs> PCB, badge, yeah, but it wasn't. Well, no, it wasn't a board. It was a record. It was a vinyl record. Ah. Um, so it was a little, yeah. And I actually wrote. I drew a clock on mine to look more like Flavor Flav. Um, <laughs> anyway, so the uh, so the history of the DefCon badge goes like this. Um, I've been friends with with the Dark Tangent with Jeff Moss for a long time since we were teenagers. He lived uh, in Seattle. He grew up in Seattle. I was from Boston. Somehow we knew each other through bulletin board systems or some hacker, you know, community some hacker conference or something. And um, so he had started DEF CON, and then he had started a conference called the Black Hat Briefings, which is now people just kind of commonly refer to it as Black Hat. And that's more of, DEF CON was like the hacker, you know, underground conference over a weekend in Las Vegas. And then Black Hat became, this was a, you know, a few years later, Black Hat was <clears throat> a corporate security conference. As the InfoSec community became the cyber community and became more of a real industry Black Hat was there at the beginning to, for have, to having technical talks and corporate sponsors and really the first kind of corporate side of things. Um, in 2005, I started... Uh, so I'd been giving talks for Black Hat for a long time. I'd been giving some talks for DEF CON. And Jeff had come up to me one day at Black Hat. We were actually in, in Japan together for the first Black Hat Asia. And he said, Joe, you should, you should teach some class about hardware hacking because they had started... Um, uh, training classes at Black Hat, which is now a common thing across a lot of platforms as well, across the different you know different events of like two day training classes or a one day workshop on a specific topic. So I was like, all right. So I ended up designing this hardware hacking curriculum that since 2005 I'd been teaching. And part of that curriculum, I have this G shaped circuit board. So it's in the shape of my logo, and it has a, <clears throat> a microchip pick on it. It originally was like a 16F 648A, and now it's a 16LF 18. 29, I think. Don't quote me on that. Um, but it was a pick-based totally board in the, yeah, <laughs> in, the, in the shape of my logo that we would do soldering exercises, desoldering exercises, cutting traces, modifying the circuit board, reverse engineering the board. And the board basically would like blink lights, but there was a security mechanism in there that if you defeat the security mechanism, it would unlock a game. And that was the challenge for the students at the end of the two-day class to defeat the security on their own using a logic analyzer, using the different tools to monitor communications and figure out the you know the process of how the system works to defeat it and that's something that I, that continues on to this day 
So after, I think, a year of doing that, Jeff said, and again, Jeff, he really is like this mastermind of seeing seeing the future. He's like this visionary of the hacker world. Um, and it's amazing because, you know, I'm an engineer by by lifestyle and by trade and by everything. So I was really just, I'm focused on doing my projects. I don't really think about how is this going to affect the future and change the world, where Jeff is like, let's make this a big thing. Let's do this. Let's do that. And he has these grand plans. So he said, hey, let's do something like your badge that you use for our training class for DEF CON. And I was like, huh, that's a pretty cool idea. Um, and that's how it started. Like before that, DEF CON had a lot of very cool badges. Like they'd always been sort of non-standard. Like their first year was actually a paper badge um, that you would write your name on or your fake name because they were mostly afraid of law enforcement at the time. Um, and But they had like, you know, some cool... Um, they had a laser cut badge one day, acrylic one, before laser cutting was like a thing. Um, they had like a liquid filled badge. They had all sorts of really neat stuff. So it just seemed like this natural progression to go into circuit boards. So DEF CON 14 was the first time um, that we designed an electronic badge. I think it was for 6,000 people or so. And it was a very simple design, a PIC 10F202 with some blinking lights that did some different stuff when you push the buttons. And... Everything, of course, was open source because we want to share the knowledge with everybody. And then I held a badge hacking contest to say, you know, what can you guys do, conference attendees, what can you do with this badge over the weekend to modify it? Just to get people inspired about hardware and sort of give them something to do if they wanted to. Like at that time, you know, say there were 6,000 people at DEF CON, I think that first year, like maybe 20 people did a badge hacking contest. But it was, it was enough to say, you know, people really were interested in hardware. So yeah, that was the first one. Then DEF CON 15, 16, 17, 18, what I consider, you know, I kind of tried to beat myself each year and do something a little bit different, um, try different technologies, work with companies that I hadn't worked before. And all of the information about those, those designs are online on my website. Um, the history, the problems I ran into, because every year the first talk of the conference would be the, the story of the badge, like the trials and tribulations of designing it. Um, and it really was this attempt to, because if you think about in, when was it, 1997, Six. 2006, like, I think Arduino may not even have been a thing, or maybe it was beginning to be a thing outside of the classroom environment. Um, I think it was still called really wire, good. wiring. Yeah, it might have been. Yeah. So, like, just the, Make, Make Magazine had, had just been starting a few years earlier. So the DIY community, the maker community, like, you know, ha the hacker world had had up until that point been very software focused, very network focused. Of course, lock picking, we had that, we had social engineering, but not hardware. So this really was an attempt to get people inspired about hardware, to learn about electronics, to take something and mess with it. And, you know, mess with something that it wasn't going to get them in trouble if they did it at work, right? Like they could take this badge, screw around with it, do something, and if they wanted to. And, and have it do something else. It was just to inspire that sort of hacker ethic, but then also get people interested in hardware. By the time DEF CON 18 came around, that final one was a, uh, um, an aluminum substrate board with one side had a laser engraving on it. And if you had seven different badges, because there were seven different types of attendees of the conference, um, human, speaker, goon, contest, vendor, press, whatever, you put them all <laughs> together and it was like this nice drawing like this this um landscape drawing that that one of the defcon artists did and then the backside had a a freescale part and some other stuff an lcd like a, a, a cholesteric um 
uh, zero power LCD from Kent displays. So, you know, we were doing a lot of really interesting stuff, but it got to the point where people were expecting every year, they're asking me like, what's gonna be the next badge? What's gonna be the next thing? And by, after doing it for five years, I could see like there were other, other groups starting to do electronic badges and like the momentum had been built. And mm-hmm. I just figured that in the hacker world, if people are expecting something, that I was just gonna stop doing it. Because my, my which sounds like really bad, but my whole thing is I, I don't want people in the hacker community to get, um, to get used to the same thing, right? You, we always wanna evolve, we always wanna try new things. So I didn't want anybody to get, com- get comfortable of saying, okay, well, Joe's gonna do the badge again, it's gonna be this, it's gonna be this. And I was tired of sort of competing with myself of what can I do to better this? What can I do? And like, and I always say with anything I do, if it's not fun, I'm not gonna do it. And it yep. got to the point where it sort of stopped being fun um, because I didn't want to compete with myself. I didn't, I have a lot of stress of like, I feel like I always have to, if I'm gonna do something, it has to be 100%. I want to always prove to myself that I'm better than I was yesterday, right? It's like this constant thing. And I just, I just got to the point of like, oh, enough people are already doing it. Like, let's change it up a little bit and I'll just stop doing the badge just without any sort of like announcement or anything. Um, Did anyone say anything about that? I mean, people were, people were bummed, but it was like, you know, the hacker, hackers adjust. And um, Ryan Clark lost, who is a friend of mine, um, had been running the mystery challenge for a long time, which was a very popular contest at DEF CON with puzzles and crypto. And um, he ended up just taking over and starting the badge design from there. But really that history just started as like, you know, Jeff Moss saying, hey, you should do something like this for DEF CON. And he doesn't, he's not a hardware guy. Like he just sort of saw the, the, the potential the, the wave starting to come. Yeah, of like electronics becoming popular. And now it is. So it's, you know, to the point where I was very careful about the aesthetics of the badge and I wanted it to look good. I would, I would leave off, um, you know, silk screen markings. I would add a lot of art because I knew that most people at the conference didn't give a shit about wearing an electronic badge. They wanted to do what they were there for DEF CON to do. And DEF CON is all about creating an environment where it is what you make it. Like some people are going to like it, some people aren't. Um, so I was very conscious about doing something that wasn't over the top and that wasn't in your face, but then people could still enjoy if they wanted to play with it. And I think I, th- I would like to think I did that. And then sort of seeing what's come after it is like, it, it's sort of like watching your kids grow up or something. It's like, damn, there's a lot of cool stuff out there and a lot of super talented people and the tools have gotten better, right? And the techniques and people have been able to share information about like, how do you load a logo into your silk screen? And there's all the, how do you do a custom cutout? So there's all these things that people just didn't know were possible. Um, and really it just comes down to like, there was nothing special other than you just talk to, to the board fab and say, hey, we're doing something a little bit different. Their manufacturing process ends up being exactly the same once you, you, know, once you work through and make sure they understand what they're doing. But it was just really a fun time to, to do something that, that nobody's done before. And that's the other thing is like, by the time I stopped, so many people were doing it, I was like, that's not my thing to continue a process. Like I would rather do something that no one's done until I'm bored with it and then go do something else. So it was just the perfect time to, to let other people kind of take over. Are you oh, guys, did sorry. you fall off your chair? No, 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 no. I was thought Steven was going to say something because he looked like he was going to say something. You guys are sleeping. No, no, no. <laughs> this is very interesting because that stuff's yeah. nowhere online. It's not even mm-hmm. in your Wikipedia page. Yeah, so I should say that um, DEF CON has been trying to put together a page <laughs> on the various badges. And every year I did write something for the, for the program. Actually, one year for DEF CON 15, I wrote a poem 
because I was tired of writing like a technical description. And I'm like, I'm just gonna write a poem about how the badge works. And for that year, for the badge hacking contest, a group of kid, a group of people, took my poem, found somehow through some like online game, you know, team they were on, um, found a rap group in Michigan, a legitimate rap duo, to create a rap song based on my poem. And then they modified the badge to be a viewfinder, you know, like the lights going up and down with amplitude. Uh, uh-huh. which that year was like a matrix of ni- 95 um, LEDs in a matrix. So they would plug in my audio, which was this rap song they had created, into the viewfinder, and it would play the song. So they actually created a, a song based on my poem, which is on my website. It's hilarious. I'm not like a rap fan, but I play the song all the time, and it's like with a ringtone on my phone. Um, so it's like <laughs> you just never know what people are going to do in the hacker world um with that sort of stuff but yeah so everything is everything like that information is on my website it's on defcon's website but the history and that's why when 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 the and and not xor guy guys started answering the question it was like well, wait there needs to be some sort of history about it i mean there doesn't need to be but otherwise it's going to be forgotten um and it's also interesting to look at my designs versus the later designs right because like you look at mine now and it's like wow those are actually like not that special um but at the time given the resources and the constraints and stuff like it, it's just interesting to see the progression it's like looking at, at windows ver- you know 1.0 and windows 10 you know even though some people would say it still looks like shit it's you know <laughs> or it's gone backwards um, you know it's gone backwards <laughs> but you know there's a progression over time so you have to take into consideration like the the era uh, uh, in which it was created or whatever but yeah, so some of that information hopefully will be preserved. Um, also, I think Jason Scott of Internet Archive has a badge page or something. Um, but who knows? You know, it's like I feel like my job was done because people got inspired and did other stuff. And like that's that's all I can ask for. Right. It's like that was just the coolest part of the whole thing. Yeah. And actually, um, I don't know if you listen to the and not XOR one, but like I'm going to do a badge for the uh, spooky pinball group at the Texas Pinball Fest. So. We're going to spread. It's going to start bleeding over to well, other dry, festivals. Yeah. It's, it's spilling over. And like the toy makers, Addy and Whisker um, made a badge for some biotech conference or something like that. It was like a DNA strand. So, yeah, it's starting to branch out and it's really neat. And people always said to me, like, you should start a business doing custom badge designs. It's like, yeah, but that's not that doesn't excite me. Like doing it a few times is fun. But like doing that over and over again, it doesn't seem fun. Right. Like I want to. I have a, a, a sort of short attention span and I want to do things that are interesting and it, you know, like I said, it stopped being fun and I wanted to do other projects and uh, that was like a really time consuming thing, but a huge, huge enjoyment and like a huge rush to be involved in that and like stand on stage and explain the process and, you know, be involved in closing ceremonies and announcing the winners that had hacked these badges in like crazy ways. It was just so cool to have so many people involved in it. Um, but it was, yeah, it was just, you know, it was time for something new. So speaking of something new, then, um, what other projects that have you done that you really liked, like you've done? Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> or just There's pick one. So I guess I, so, you know, I, I guess I should say like part of what I do in, in my, in my job is, and the job is just me doing what I want to do, um, is design electronics. So I would say like part-time I design electronics and, and I'll, I'll design various mod, mostly modules for hobbyists. So I've done a lot of work with Parallax. Um, with their RFID uh, reader and writer series and the Emic text-to-speech module, and I've done some other stuff with them that has now been discontinued. Um, 
and I've done a bunch of consulting work of working on uh, consumer electronics and medical devices and all sorts of things. So I've worked on a lot of projects. So there's sort of some of them kind of stand out. And on the other side of that, then I do my training and teaching more security related, which I never actually thought would become a thing because, you know, I, like I said, I am an engineer. Like I like designing stuff. I grew up engineering and building and, and breaking stuff. Um, but it just happened that the security has just sort of taken over. Um, but yeah, designing things, I don't know. I mean, currently, so I guess one of the last things I've done, and I know you guys mentioned it on the show, is the, the Tooth Tunes toothbrush hack, yep, which, yep. Was, which was not a, pro- a product by any means. And it was sort of this thing where for the past few years, I'd been thinking of doing it and it just came time to do it. It was like in between some traveling and I thought it would be fun. And now my kids are old enough to brush their own teeth. I was like, this is perfect. Like, I'm going to do this thing. And it was this tooth, uh, you know, you, you detailed it, but it was like this, this toothbrush that is sold by Arm & Hammer and they might not sell it anymore, but you can still get them on eBay where they play music of like Hopefully really not bad used. pop songs. <laughs> not used. No, but I, I, you know, with eBay, you never know. Um, <laughs> they, uh, so these things play like really bad pop songs and they vibrate some transducer in the, in the head, in the bristles. So as you're brushing your teeth through bone conduction, you actually feel like you're hearing the song in your head. So it's a really neat concept, and I know bone conduction has been around for a long time, and swimmers have been using it, you know, to to have to be able to listen to music underwater. And I'm sure there's lots of other applications, um, but this was like, as far as I know, the first consumer application. And so these toothbrushes were out there, and I was like, well, the songs are really bad. What if I could modify the circuitry and make my own, you know, make it play whatever I wanted? Um, so I basically took took a um, took the circuitry out, created a device with a it was an AT Tiny. Um, with a little wave, um, live, wave player library and a micro SD card and built a little circuit that would stick right in place. So now you could load your own songs in it and play it. And it just made it fun. But that's an example of like, a lot of times I'll do stuff that isn't necessarily to make money. It's to do something because it's interesting and I can learn something and other people can learn from it and I can open source it and people could take that and build on it. Right? Now, and that's sort of like, my. that's what I've realized over time too, is like not everything that you work on has to make money because money is not the ultimate goal it's it's increasing this this excitement about hardware in the community especially in the hacker world but just in general of like you know now my kids see that and they go oh my god you can make your own circuitry to play things like then their mind starts going and other kids minds start going realizing that they don't have to buy something off the shelf they can make something on their own or they can modify something and like that's the that's the key is doing that so it's like a lot of the stuff i work on is really silly and not practical, but it's it's interesting and it's educational and it you know somebody somewhere will hopefully build upon it. So on the tooth tune, uh, tooth tunes, did you do any testing on like if like a heavy metal song versus like a classic song would clean your teeth better? <laughs> well, no, because I don't actually brush my teeth, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm joking. Um, I do like every once in a while. He's got like one tooth hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he plays music on that one tooth. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, no, so I, I haven't, I haven't tested it. Um, uh, the song I ended up putting in was at least for my, my version of the toothbrush, um, is a song by, by a parody hardcore punk band called crucial youth. And they were sort of this band making fun of the straight edge youth crew culture of the eighties, which is, you know, the straight edge culture, was and is um, kind of an anti-drug, anti-drinking um, kind of philosophy and mindset 
kind of going against the mainstream pressures, which I was heavily involved in and still am as sort of, uh, uh, you know, I was as a teenager and still now. But the band was hilarious, and they had a song called Positive Dental Outlook. Um, instead, of the, <laughs> instead of the traditional, like, you hear a lot about positive mental attitude or positive mental outlook as, like, a real, a real concept of, like, thinking positively. So this was, like, a hilarious song. And, of course, with the toothbrush, it was perfect. So that was, like, a pretty heavy song. Um, and I haven't actually brushed my teeth with it, but, like, it definitely vibrates the bristles, and you can, you can hear it uh, pretty well. That's awesome. That, yeah, that's pretty hilarious. Um, can we find that song on YouTube, I guess? Yeah, so actually if you go, um, if you probably if you just search for Tooth Tunes Hack on Google, it'll probably come up with a link to one of the videos. And I've made a video about the project, um, and then I link to the song also, and the song has the lyrics in it. Great. Um, so you can read along. But yeah, you know, it was just a kind of fun, ridiculous thing. But I learned some really neat things about because I had built my the wave player and I had built that on a, an existing project. So I'm using an open source project to build on that to do something else. So I learned a lot about an area that I wouldn't normally deal with, which is Atmel processors um, and just dealing, you know, dealing with this cool uh, vibrating transducer and stuff like it was it was really kind of neat. Um, but there's lots of other projects I've worked on. And they all tend to be things, especially recently, since since training is my real avenue of, of financial stuff, that I have more time to do kind of these other things. But I try to try to work on things now that are going to be open source for sure, um, at least partially, you know, if not the entire thing, schematic, uh, you know, board layout, bill of materials and stuff. Like the DEF CON badges were, I don't know, you know, there might be people saying that it's not fully open source because I didn't release the Gerbers. And that was because um, the Dark Tangent, Jeff Moss, didn't want people to just go and create their own black DEF CON badge, which is like a lifetime entry to the conference, and then use those to get in. Um, but I do try to just share as much as I can because it really comes down, again, to that education and inspiring the future pe- you know, generations of, of hackers and people doing stuff. Like, as cheesy as that sounds, like, it's true. Like, I'm 41 years old. Like, I- I'm not a young kid in the, in the community anymore. And, like, it, to be able to have something to share is like that's what's important is like getting getting other people inspired because uh, you know the next generation are going to take what we've done and, and build on it hopefully for better things and not make a lot of like dumb social media things and stuff I, like facebook I mean, that is just horrible and you we are know. getting the, we are getting the internet of things now yeah that's true oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> that that is like a whole other like oh my god don't even get me started but you know especially from i'll get started especially um (laughs) you know like internet of things is basically just a a silly word of like we're connecting more stuff to the internet and the things are just computers they're just low resource you know resource constrained computers on the network we can't even secure highly functioning very powerful machines and servers on the internet how the hell are we gonna you know secure devices that are that basically have no capability other than you know tcpip stack and some other very basic things the approach of dealing with iot security and all of the threats we're seeing is just the wrong way to do it because you can't rely on the endpoints to be secure um i think i think parker and i have been preaching for a while about why uh these exact same (laughs) things (laughs) about uh yeah the fact that it's not going to be secure or it isn't currently no it it won't be and i think we're going to end up seeing a lot of a lot of continued widespread attacks and continued devices getting owned. Um, you know, the, 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 onus has, the onus has been placed on the consumer to like change the default password of a camera. 
Like, do you know anybody that actually changes the default password? Except maybe us that are like technical. Like I know for a fact, my neighbor that just put in his, his internet connected front door camera did not change his password, right? <laughs> it's just people don't do that. And these are problems we've been seeing for decades with computer systems. And now it's just more devices being added to the network. So, you know, maybe there's going to be network monitoring or maybe there's going to be firewalls or proxies or other things, but it's just like the mindset is just the wrong approach. And it's interesting to see from a hardware perspective, it's like, well, great. Like it's more job security for me because I get to go teach more people. (laughs) But then on the other side, it's like so frustrating because nothing is changing in like decades, you know? So it's, it's, it's interesting. And of course, you know, the money, the companies with the biggest budgets are going to, are going to have the biggest influence. And even if it's the wrong solution, they're going to be there. And it's a really, really hard problem to, to deal with. And designing secure hardware also is very, very hard. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that. But it's just a very, very open area. Oh, and I should mention, most engineers, like, you know, design engineers don't have a security background. Most security professionals don't have an engineering background. So there's this disconnect of, you know, we have Maker Fair, we have um, Embedded Systems Conference, we have engineering shows, and then we have hacker shows. There's very little overlap. There has been some attempts at like the Embedded Systems Conference or Design West. Now, I don't remember what they call it now, but that that conference um, had a track about computer security. And we're starting to see some overlap, but it's still very preliminary. And that's the hard thing is if designers aren't thinking like attackers, then they're not going to properly protect themselves in a way that that will be practical and useful. So it's, it's scary all around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Joe. sometimes makes me want to like jump out of security altogether and jump out of technology and just like go be a nomad. I don't know. Be a nomad and just like go go running on trails and never come home. Well, what's that? What's that guy on YouTube that like he made toys and then he like like moved to like some island in the Caribbean or something? Oh yeah. So J- so Jamie Mansell. Yeah. Um, be like which him. Which is hilarious. Oh my god. I I I love Jamie for more reasons than what he's doing now. We actually ran on the same track team in Boston um, before he went on this journey. So back in like 2002, my wife, my now wife and I, we were, we were dating at the time. Um, we met on the track team and then Jamie was on the track team as well. And he's this phenomenal runner. He ran at, um, I believe it was Brown University and he was a stellar runner um, back in high school in Canada. Um, and he just happened to be living in Boston. So we had known him and he had always been this quirky guy building robots and he would run to practice with like, a 50 pound weight vest on he would run like six miles from his house and then do this crazy running workout and then run six miles home with this giant vest so he'd always had this passion of building and you know it was some it was something where like it's slightly more normal now but he was just living what he wanted to live and it was like so inspiring and amazing so we actually had gone to visit him when he had moved out to vermont to build his first geodesic dome he was living there, and he has some videos of his time in Vermont online. Um, but it was like he basically had gotten sick of the mainstream world, right? And it was like, I want to do what I want to do. I've saved up the money. I'm going to go do this. So he lived off in the middle of in the middle of nowhere. It was like this landlocked area that he had to hike through some other property to get to. And he hauled everything there manually. He built his dome. He had his little hot tub he built. He had a little uh, battery charger circuit with his um, exercise bike. And it was like... I was so envious of that, and I still am. So then he ended up, you know, making a lot of videos, and he moved. I think it was somewhere in South America, 
Panama or something, he bought an island. Like now he lives on an island and he's building everything. And and Keely and I, my wife and I were looking at that, at some of those videos. We're like, man, that we know Jamie, like that's cool. He can do that. Like, how come we don't do that? And it's definitely this mindset. Like he just has it, right? And he can do it. And and I know he talks about it in his videos of like, you know, if you're questioning why why are you sitting in an office and I'm out here, like you can do this too. And it's totally true. But I just love his energy and I love what he's doing. I personally know that I could not survive one day on a remote island or I would die. Like there's no <laughs> question about it. Um, like I, I grew up in the city. I, I, you know, like I go trail running a lot. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a competitive runner and I've been running my whole life, but I started running on trails. I'm terrified of, of, of cougars and snakes and bears. So it's like, you know, could you imagine living on some tropical island and it's like, oh my God, there's a spider. Like I would just, I, I don't know what I would do. Um, but yeah, so that's, you know, his, his thing is he is super talented, technological genius, mechanical genius that had just had enough and went nomad. And I think about that every day. I'm like, man, maybe we should just go move and live with Jamie. Uh, so you never know. Maybe one of these days we'll do a, <laughs> a podcast from, from the island in the South America somewhere. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> So with that, Joe, where can our listeners find out more about you? So probably the best way is uh, on Twitter. I'm at Joe Grand, J-O-E-G-R-A-N-D. I like to say like $1,000, not like a big burrito. For those, <laughs> I figure you guys might get that, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Explain it like Grande. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> so at Joe Grand, that's really my, my only kind of public social media. Like being, secure, being a security person, a hacker, like I like having the personal – the personal side, but it's all like the public side, but I don't post that much stuff. It's mostly like ongoing projects or maybe once in a while I'll do things um, to share, but I don't post like I'm eating dinner now or I'm doing this or I'm doing that. Like it's, it's, it, it's less of a day to day and it's more of just like once in a while, but at Joe Grand, my website is grandideastudio.com. Um, it's not the easiest website to navigate. It was designed, we designed it like 10 years ago. So it's not like the coolest, you know, what all the, what all the cool kids are doing now. I will fix that at some point, but go to, if you go to portfolio, you can browse through all of the different stuff that I've, that I've worked on and look for details of various projects. And, you know, if you take anything and build on it and do something cool, like, let me know. Cause that's, again, like that's the most inspiring thing to see that people are kind of progressing and, and taking that next step to, to doing other things. Well, great. That's, that's, uh, that's fantastic. And, uh, with that, would you, uh, like to sign us out, Joe? Sure, let's see. All right. So that was the Macrofab Engineering podca Podcast. I was your guest, and I actually still am Joe Grand. Thank you. <laughs> and we were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker, Do uh, Parker Dolman. <laughs> uh, next week, we'll have our monthly meetup here in Houston. Check the podcast notes for more information. Take it easy, guys. <laughs> the code word is Kingpin.
Just a top iconic and a try not to fucking move. Simple elementary, this mode is custom tanks entry. I'm Joe Grand, aka Kingpin. Just like badges, I'll make your head spin. Back up, bitches, I'm far from soft. A heck of not a poet, I represent lost. I'm Joe Grand, aka Kingpin. Just like badges, I'll make your head spin. Back up, bitches, I'm far from soft. A heck of not a poet, I represent lost. Hit the bottom icon, the beginning of a quest. You use either icon to cycle through the list. Tap both icons to save the character you. 16 levels is the max that we do. When it's all done, seek out the solid block. Tap both icons, the message will walk. Next ball set speed inscription. Change it like a drug prescription. Select velocity between one and five, which goes from slow and boring to a Maserati drive. Now we arrive at our last bad state. It's a special vision treat that will shove up in your face. Wave your badge up to your eyes in what direction? A secret message pops up like morning's resurrection. The 